Now, following numerous requests from viewers, we're pleased to welcome back International Rescue, as once again on London Weekend Television, Thunderbirds are go. again dear listener welcome along to Fanderson podcast number four I'm Ros Connors your host for the next hour and what's coming up in uh, this edition little big screen we're going to take a look back at uh, the home movie market and see what Jerry Anderson productions were available for you to buy and watch at home and in full color too before the days of home video and even for some people color tv and later on in our special guest spot, actress Frances Barber will be telling us what it was like to wear a rather restricting costume in Jerry Anderson's Space Precinct. Also, we'll be getting an update on all things Fanderson when I chat with club chairman Nick Williams. Now, if you were a London television viewer back in 1981, you may well have recognised the unmistakable voice of uh, London Weekend Television continuity announcer Verity Martindale, who welcomed back Thunderbirds, which began rebroadcasting again on the 4th of April of that year. But what did we do before then? Because a big dearth of Gerry Anderson productions, certainly in the London area, there was only a couple of films shown in 1980, Thunderbirds Ago, and also Doppelganger. Apart from those, we didn't have very much to watch. So what did we do if we were a Gerry Anderson fan being starved of our favourite films and television shows? Well, one person who can answer that is Fab Magazine co-editor Ian Fryer. We've got a fascinating uh, topic to talk about today, Ian, and that is uh, super and standard 8mm films. And I I suppose for the benefit of uh, our listener today who's not come across these before, exactly what are they? Hello, Ian. Hello, Roz. Hello, listeners. Um, eight millimeter film was the original home entertainment. If you wanted to see your favorite TV series or clips of your favorite film at home, you had to have a projector that showed eight millimeter film, uh, which was 16 millimeter film, professional grade, literally slit down the middle. Right. So there would only be uh, sprocket holes down one side. And uh, that's the original, what they now call standard eight which was then supplanted in the 60s by Super 8. That's what that was. And you would buy this at, uh, well, various places. I mean, even Dixon's had uh, their own label, Pyramid Films, uh, which some of the Anderson stuff wound up released on. And you would literally, you would set up a screen, or if you didn't have one of that, a bed sheet or something like that, and you would uh, crank up your projector. And uh, if the projector broke down and the film stuck, your film would melt during the screening, <laughs> which had never had happened, thankfully. 
and um, the way that they would uh, distribute these was really interesting because you would get different lengths you would get and I'm holding this up which is no got not much good for an audio format well, I can see it though again, like this, so you hold it up for me a little box like this and it's like a like a box pyramid of fun or like children that. that's got written on it do you it doesn't say any more than that though does it Ian it doesn't there's a little bit on the end and it says dramatic landing and it's uh and it's a series from fireball xl5 is this one because uh, the pyramid ones came in a like a standard box uh with just a little bit printed on the end to tell you what you were actually buying uh, whereas if you bought one that was from uh, the original distributors, Walton Films, it will come in something more like this, especially ah, yes, branded. With and there's Fireball actually on the package there. Yeah, uh, but the size of this thing is like a box, like a packet of cough sweets or something like that. And uh, this is uh, this size is what's called fifty. This is a fifty-foot reel of film. It's a tiny mm -hmm. foot reel of film, which would last maybe two and a half minutes. Right. And so it would either be, uh, in some instances, they would try to condense an entire half-hour episode into five down to minutes. two and a half minutes. Into two, two and, and a half, half minutes. minutes. Gosh. Yeah. Um, <laughs> or they would just show, like, a highlight, a scene of a highlight scene, yeah. like the, the fireball one is just a scene of fireball trying to land and uh, failing, some of, some of the Anderson series title sequences are two and a half minutes. That's it then, isn't it? It's all over. Yeah, um, there's a, I was watching uh, one of the Thunderbirds ones and the title sequence was so popular they actually had to try to incorporate it in. So there were different sizes. You mean you got the, the, the 50 mil, then you would get the maybe 100 mil, which would double that. And a lot of them were releasing these five minute versions. 200 foot would get you, um, 400 foot would get you the entire episode. So right. um, several Fireball XL5s were released like that. And it's the entire episode. And they would release them in silent versions. And uh, one company called Mountain Films would release them, and uh, and there would be explanatory notes on the box, so you knew what earth was going on on this silent film that was on the screen. Whereas Walton Films, when they started releasing them, they would put silent movie style intertitles. Right. So you would get snatches of dialogue, and... like in an old Laurel and Hardy film or something like that, yes. actually on the screen. And they do make it an awful lot easier to follow. Now, you're um, obviously a collector of this sort of thing, though, Ian, because you're holding up various boxes. I know our listener can't see this um, listening to the podcast, but... Um, I'm looking at Fab Magazine number 70. If anybody wants to go out and dig out Fab 70 with a, a wonderful article titled The Little Big Screen. And I take it that the photographs that uh, appear in this feature are all your films. Yeah, I got into it during the 1980s when the format was really dying out. And you would go off to Blackpool where every year they had a convention in, Bla um, in like, like it was in the Winter Gardens or in a hotel somewhere. And there would all these people set up who would actually were selling films. And the big company was this place called Duran Films. And uh, Duran sadly went out of business in about 2011. And I only found out they were going out of business because I was ringing them to buy something. And uh, they were still releasing things at this point in the 80s. And I've got one here. And there's a picture of it in the fab, uh, which is a bit strange because they had the picture of the actual box and I had the thing in front of me as well. And they were releasing these things. This is cinema adverts. This is a reel of uh, Pearl and Dean cinema advertising. And it includes some of the, um, some of the like fab Zoom ice cream adverts with the Anderson characters on which was fantastic. It was the only way you could get to see them at the time. 
because mm-hmm. you know nowadays you just pop on pop them on YouTube. Yes, and there they are. But you're saying but in the eighties, a, a lot of us were, were moving on to video then, and I remember getting my first video in the very uh, very end of the seventies, and the beginning of the eighties was a new dawn, and I I I've got to admit I wouldn't have thought to to even want to purchase um, super yeah. or standard eight millimeter film, but of course the fan scene was just picking up then and I did visit other people's homes and I do believe that um, you're talking about a gathering that we had once a long time ago and although I say I've been to so many of these gatherings now in different people's homes that uh, it all becomes a bit of a blur but I do remember seeing eight millimeter films projected on a on a wall of some of our not just Jerry Anderson but also ITC favorites so it does seem to have been a big thing at one time but back in the 70s if that was the boom time surely you would have had to have been you know pretty well off to be able to afford to buy these things and the projection equipment as well yeah because i was buying them in the 80s when people were flogging them off so i was getting these things quite cheaply and coming home with great huge staggering under huge boxes of these things that i was getting quite cheaply but uh, like I would buy, and I've got uh, some of them here, um, like a, a three-reel set, which had the entire episode of uh, UFO exposed. Right. And I'd never seen an episode of UFO at this point. So oh. I was thrilled to be able to see this stuff because they were, they disappeared from TV for a period. And even if they only disappeared for five years, it was a vital five years where I was suddenly aware of these things and couldn't mm. see them. Like and a lifetime these... though, isn't it, to a young person? Yeah, That's like like absolutely. a lifetime of not seeing your favourite shows. So what did you do then, Ian? You, you got yourself a projector, you project them on the yeah. wall and you just immerse yourself into this... Well, it would have been the equivalent, surely, of one of these big televisions now. You'd have a, a huge, well, yeah. great picture on your wall of things like Thunderbirds and UFO and Fireball XL5. Yeah, and um, sometimes they will be rather severely cut down. I mean, some of the things I've got here, and I've got this, this is a German print I've got here of UFO, and this is from, uh, this, is, uh, this is identified, which in oh, German yes, yeah. is called uh, UFO... Uh, alarm spoofer eins, uh, alarm stage one, and uh, and it's the entire episode cut down to about twenty minutes, and uh, these all originated in Italy. And this is kind of interesting as to why were these ITC shows all being released on Super Eight in Italy, in Italy yes. and being distributed in Europe? They were very popular in in Germany as well, and it's the same reason why ITC shows and Anderson shows were released as films in countries like Italy, and it's that Italy simply didn't have colour television at this point. Ah. Certain parts of Italy didn't get colour telly till about 1978. That's very and that's late. just when they started broadcasting it. Then you've got to get people to actually buy the televisions. It's like we know that British TV started colour broadcasting in 67, but when did we get our first colour TVs? It was a long time after that. Mm, 69 for ITV areas. Definitely in yeah. London, it was I, 1969. I think 67 was test broadcast, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. And uh, but I've got such fun memories of these. Uh, it's like uh, it's time lash, and uh, and these were uh, I'd say these were all originally Italian releases, and you would get a, an Italian guy at the beginning of the film. Yeah, uh, saying got the British title. dialogue on though, haven't they? Are they dubbed in yeah, this Italian is, or no? This is this is English sound. Yeah, this is English sound, and this is tw- uh, approximately twenty minutes. You've got time lash cut down to twenty minutes. It's completely impossible to follow what's going on. Really, but you've got this Italian guy at the beginning, which I love, and he says, "Time lash, 
Lash. Lash. They've got an echo on. Lash. Okay. And there we've got <laughs> the cat with ten lives. Now, that one I have seen. I do have a copy of that one, which I managed to pick up quite considerably later on. So I did get to see these things. And I think I've seen the identified print that you're talking about that's about yeah. 15, 20 minutes long. And it's just like a, it seems a very rushed version of identified. But of course, like you're saying, Ian, if you haven't seen this series on television for 10 mm. or more years, you're not going to complain here, are you? Especially if it's in full colour, projected no. uh, this um, it's such an immense size on, on, on the wall or on a big screen. Yeah, well, it's like, you know, you travel to one end of the country to the other to see my print of Strange Report. Really? <laughs> yeah. That was the big draw, I think, at the time, because we'd none of us seen Strange Report. And I got... Um, I remember it. Oh, I remember it from the yeah. television. Yes. I'd, yeah, you see, I'd never seen it. It was just a line in a, you know, Halliwell's TV companion or something to me. And so <laughs> the chance to actually see these was absolutely thrilling. And there was all sorts I was introduced in that way. I mean, once I bought some complete prints in eight millimeter of some uh, some films. There was one wonderful film, which I could recommend to anybody if you get the chance to see it. And it's called The Fiend Without a Face. Oh, I remember that face. film. Is it with Marshall Thompson, who went on to That's play right. Dactari? That's right, yeah. And this is a, a sort of a science fiction horror film, all uh, set in England, but there's some brains or motion something. animation. Yeah. That's right, brains, and they move like cartoon snakes. Um, they're, they're, they're visible originally, which has saved a lot on the budget, but eventually they, uh, all this wonderful stop-motion animation that they had done in West Germany turns up. And it's really full-on. This is in the back, the back end of the 50s, and you get this incredible violence as these as Marshall Thompson and his mates are blasting these brains with shotguns and they go splat everywhere in stop motion. It's a wonderful, wonderful film. I would recommend it to anybody. And, uh, and on the other things, I also got to see uh, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers in Top Hat. Right. My first experience was that. I was sight unseen. I bought a print of the film. And uh, as I always say, you know, like everybody's uh, buying vinyl record players these days, well, this time next year, you'll all have projectors. Forget uh -huh. Blu-ray. Well, it didn't happen, did it? It didn't happen back in the 80s because that was the time that VHS and other format yeah. videos were coming in. So you were probably an exception to the rule here, uh, Ian. Were these films, do you think, produced for fans or would there have been another market? I'm thinking Fireball XL5, the supercar films, they seem to have been released in the 70s. Who would have been the target market back in those days before fandom, Fanderson, and anything to do with uh, Jerry Anderson enthusiasts? Well, these things were being released while the series were still on the air. Uh, things like, you know, Fireball and Supercar and Stingray, uh, you know, they were all being released while they were still being shown in the 60s. Uh, you know, you would go to your local photographic retailer and buy these. As I said before, Dixon's had their own range. And, uh, yeah, they were generally bought through photographic retailers. It was sort of part of that trade, right. um, which I actually used to be in. Uh, so it's part of how I sort of caught up with it. And, you know, in, and it was for different pockets as well, because uh, it's like the Thunderbirds ones, they will be released. There were different lengths. There were, you could get them in black and white. You could get them in black and white with sound. You could get them in colour with sound. So, you know, they were covering different ends of the market. Some of them were basically pocket money. 
these tiny little two and a half minute highlight things but some of them would be they'd be a main present for christmas because they were seriously expensive when they were first out I'm looking here at the second page of the feature in Fab 70. There were some Stingray ones as well, which seem yeah. to have been very much like the Fireball XL5. Looked like they've been released by Wharton Films, the same company. Thunderbirds. Now, some of these I do remember because I remember a lad at school having one of these Thunderbirds films, mm. 50 foot. So once yes. again, you're talking of about a couple of minutes but, but, of the episode, yeah, a couple aren't of minutes, you? Yeah. So, That's Arrow films by that point. But they were in uh, colour. They were in colour when yeah. I seem to remember this lad only had black and white television but had filmed these films in colour on a colour projector, which is quite interesting. I, I picked up a few well, of well, these of course, things. Yeah, that's, the, that's of course, a big draw at the time when these things are coming out of the 60s. If you could afford to get this in colour, that's your chance to see Thunderbirds in colour mm. because we didn't have colour broadcasting. And Joe 90 as well made it onto 8mm, but not Captain Scarlet. No, for some reason, there's, there, never, there were never any Captain Scarlet releases. The Joe 90 ones are interesting because uh, they got a bit more, Arrow films got a bit more, um, although they're, they tend to be shorter, I don't, think, I don't think there were any actually complete episodes put out. Uh, they tended to be um, like five minute or minute or two and a half minute cut downs. They actually put them on a subtitle. So when there was a bit of dialogue, rather than cutting to the dialogue on a um, silent movie style on, a, on an intertitle, they actually put them on the screen. So, um, you know, although these were, you know, quite smaller scale releases, they put a bit more effort into them. And, uh, and there's a specially composed end title as well with the Joe 90 logo of sort of Joe in the, you know, surrounded by the big rat. And uh, in that lovely micrograma bold extended font, the, the end underneath. Right. Now I'm looking at the packaging for the two Joe 90 films. Mm. One shows the what looks suspiciously like the MiG-242 and the missile base yeah. from the pilot episode. And the yeah. other one looks like it's possibly from Business Holiday with the scene yeah, with, that's the, right. with the um, the special vehicle, the tank, yeah. attacking the base again. Now, there's a little story attached to that film that I read somewhere that uh, the special effects supervisor, Steve Begg, who we know has worked very recently on Bond movies. He's worked yeah. on um, Skyfall and um, Spectre couple yeah. of the most recent Bond films. Of course, he started his career on Terrorhawks, didn't he, when he uh, joined Jerry Anderson's unit for that. I seem to remember reading an article where Steve Begg, and if he's listening to this today, he may want to come back and elaborate more on it, but he was in partially inspired to work in special effects from watching this 8mm movie of Joe 90, seeing all this destruction on the screen. Yeah, and he was for, and the first thing he shot was in eight millimeter. Uh, he was making his own little eight millimeter films. He made one of uh, Pearl Harbor. He made this film about uh, the attack on Pearl Harbor, and that was what they showed Jerry. Ah, uh, I do believe got, I remember this. I think it's been shown on the television. Is it called Twenty Nine Seconds to Zero or something like yeah, that? Yeah, I think I think it was shown on a screen test or something like that. Yes. But Dave Nightingale got to see this. It's absolutely brilliant. We have to show Jerry this because he was in contact with Jerry by then with uh, helping him with the Blackpool exhibition. And they actually got Jerry to sit in front of this thing. And Jerry was so impressed. He basically offered Steve his first job. 
and that's how it happened. And now yeah. he's working on Bond pictures with um, uh, Daniel Craig, and it's wonderful to know. It's nice to know how a career comes along from the early days of 8mm. But uh, for me, and I've got to say, well, I've only just sort of happened across it, but uh, my background, as you know, is in television, and I guess one mm. of the reasons I didn't get too involved with 8mm is because if I hold it up to the screen here, though again our listener can't hear this today, this is a 16mm print of Joe 90, most special astronaut. So this is a a 16 millimetre print, um, 115 East 57th Street, New York, with ITC Entertainment all over the can here. So this is an old, probably an old television print. And uh, I happened to come by this and certain other ones back in the 80s. So my focus mm. really went to the 16 millimetre mm. film market myself. I mean, I... I don't want to give our listener the impression that I've got a house full of films, which I haven't. I've got a house full of cats, but not a house full yeah. of films. I've got a few sprinklings of a few little bits and pieces and little treasures that I keep here from the Anderson world, which is nice. But 16mm I found more attractive than, than 8mm, and that's possibly why I didn't go around scooping them all up, all the 8mm. I left that little task to you. Could I just talk about 16mm? Because there is something I wanted to raise, which I find really interesting. And uh, we were talking about Italy and uh, not having colour television. Well, one of the other markets, which is where 16mm was very popular, was South Africa, because South Africa didn't have any television up until well into the 70s. It's like the mid-70s before um, South Africa gets any television service whatsoever. And it's not because of, uh, you know, they were blockaded or anything. It was uh, like a political decision by the government at the time. And the, uh, I, will re I will get to the point eventually. The, uh, if you talk to South Africans of the right age, they're still furious about this because they were the only country on earth couldn't watch Man Landing on the Moon. Oh. Yeah, they had a wonderful radio service. Some of the radio dramas they made, they made an Avengers radio drama because it was the only way they could get to see the series. Or was it? Well, there was an underground trade in 16mm prints uh -huh. that would be imported. You'd nip across to Rhodesia, say, snap up some 16mm prints, and they would, and every big city would have. Yes. Uh, now like Zimbabwe. Yes. Yes. Oh, yes, we've gone back in time now. Yes. And, and every big city would have several, the equivalent of a video shop now, selling 16mm prints of things. And uh, and you would have a party around your house. You invite all your friends, show a 16mm print of the latest British TV series. They might have an Avengers print or a, or a no hiding place or something like that. Mm. And the theory is, unfortunately, it's rather a closed world that all these prints are still around somewhere. And it's possible that there are missing episodes there. I thought that this conversation was taking a certain direction here, that you were going to start saying that episodes of series missing from the BBC archive uh, or other yes. archives could turn up in these in That's South the Africa. the very place I was headed, yeah. Right. Unfortunately, it's a, the 16mm sort of collecting world, which I'm not a part of, but it's... It's not the same as the fan world, you know. No. People want to... Well, it's not um, affordable, is it, to fan? 16mm yeah. is, is a professional format for film. An 8mm was the home format and creating a more affordable way of people to mm. watch film. There's cellulose 
that a 35 millimeter, the highly combustible cellulose that the 35 millimeter films used to be made out of, they never made 16 mil films from that because you really don't want that stuff in your house. Are you talking about nitrate film? Nitrate, I beg your pardon, nitrate, because, you know, nitrate is very flammable and the gas nitrate gives off when it burns is oxygen, so it's self-fueling, which is why cinema fires used to be so deadly. Mm-hmm. And why uh, and why there was such? Um, I think this has been a problem with a lot of the Laurel and Hardy archive that I've been reading on online. That a lot of that was nitrate film that then had mm. to be transferred to what's known as safety film. Yeah. Or acetate, I think, was yeah. the replacement. What you're talking about uh, for nitrate film, because, like you say, <laughs> the nitrate is so potentially dangerous. Yeah, if you ever seen the film um, Cinema Paradiso, there's a cinema fire in that, and they don't really explain what's happening or why the fire is so deadly and they can't put it out. But that's why uh, is that you know it's 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 just what films were made from, um, and um, vault fires were a terrible thing. Um, like MGM had a terrible vault fire, I think 1967. And some irreplaceable films were lost forever mm. uh, because you know once you know the vault goes up. That's it. Sometimes, in some places, that was the only copy of something like London After Midnight, the most sought-after mm. film in the world. There is no known copy of this film with Lon Chaney. We've got to say, though, that our films here on 8mm are perfectly safe. And I'm just looking now through the UFO ones. I mean, Thunderbirds ones seem to have come in two different styles here. There's a, like bubble pack boxes here and they were in colour and there were later ones done in black and white. Why they did them in yeah. black and white later on I don't know. Mm. Maybe it was cost saving but the nicest looking boxes I've got to say are the UFO ones which I've got on yeah. page 42 and 40, 43 of Fab 70, and I'm just holding it up for you there. Now, you've got some of those films in front of you, the actual movies, yeah. which I'd love to be able to see and um, have a get-together at some stage in a film screening because that's the kind yeah. of thing I'd just love to do. Yeah. One thing I should add as well is we're very fortunate, as Anderson fans, there's only one missing Anderson series, uh, which is The Adventures of Twizzle. There's only one episode oh. around of that. Um, whereas uh, with some series, literally our only chance to see it would have been with 8mm prints. Was it released in 8mm Twizzle? No, no, it wasn't. Uh, but no, it was the series I, I'm really talking about, uh, Space Patrol, which uh, isn't missing, but it might as well have been until Network put it out on DVD. Yeah, absolutely only chance to see an episode of Space Patrol, unless uh, unless you were collecting 16mm and a print turned up, was from the commercially available 8mm cut-down release. It was the only publicly available way of seeing it. And Noddy, Noddy, the, but the puppet series which first introduced Jerry Anderson to uh, AP Films to Making Films was a Noddy advert. And I've always been fascinated to see what the original TV puppet series was like from the 50s. Well, fa- well, there were 8mm releases of which finally are popping up on YouTube. So, we, And um, I think a TV print has also turned up. So now, if you do a bit of searching for the um, Noddy 1955, I think would do the trick, you can actually see what part of what the competition was like when Anderson was making his first, um, his first steps into puppetry with Roberta Lee. And one thing it points up is how much better the Anderson shows were. 
Mm. I mean, right from, I mean, we've, I've compared them. That comes uh, as no surprise Jer- to me, Ian, because no. that's why I've enjoyed um, Jerry and Sylvia Anderson's work all the way from dot to today yeah. is because it wasn't like anything else that was on the television at the time. It was just something special. And this is what I think is wrong with today's television programmes, is that they try to imitate everything else that's around them. The result Hmm. being everything looks the same, tastes the same. Back in the day, Jerry and Sylvia Anderson (coughs) were innovators. They and their team were innovators. They were trailblazing. They were setting the standards. Yeah, and they were filmmakers, which sounds a bit obvious, but when you watch Watch With Mother, because all that's available, I've still got the VHSs of Watch With Mother, but you watch the puppetry in the Watch With Mother, and it's radio with pictures. You know, you could you could turn the picture off and still work out what's going on. Uh, whereas you immediately you watch, uh, you know, that the, event, the first episode of The Adventures with Trizzle, the lighting's beautiful. The sets are well made. Cinematic. It's extremely visual. It's yeah. cinematic, that's yes. right. And that's why it's so, well, it's such a tragedy that there aren't more episodes of Twizzle yeah. available to I view. I think Jerry and One Sylvia were trying to move away from the cardboard cutout backgrounds and create realism. And if you if you go ahead to things like Secret Service, Joe 90, they're really making spy dramas with puppets yes. and models, aren't they? They're just standard, they what would be a standard spy drama normally with live actors, yeah. but they're just doing it with puppets. And of course, because it is set in a puppet and model world, they can let their imagination run away with them. I guess this is fertile stuff for the world of the 8mm collector. Yeah. It's because of all the visual stuff that you've got in the Jerry and Sylvia Anderson shows here. I'm just, just looking at the Thunderbirds ones here because there were some mm. different lengths with Thunderbirds. You've mentioned different lengths with Stingray and Fireball. Um, mm. Thunderbirds came in 50-footers, which didn't last very long, but there were also some longer ones, weren't there? Yeah, that's right. Um, for, for different pockets, I suppose you would say. Uh, we've got... I'm, I'm, I'm consulting the same article myself now. 30 Minutes Afternoon and um, Day of Disaster, I'm thinking of in particular here. Seem to be yes, done in a longer foot, format. That's right, 150 feet, which would be about 15 minutes, give or take. That's quite quite good, though, if you want to sit there and yeah. enjoy Thunderbirds. It's a little bit better than threading the projector, putting on a 50 foot and then sit down in the chair. And then it's time to get out of the chair and turn it off yeah. again. Yeah. And, um, and you know, the, the, the impact of seeing it in colour can't be underestimated. You know, all these series that we grew up watching in colour weren't seen on television in colour until into the 70s and even then it took and this is something I'm going to write about at some point changes in television in broadcasting regulation Mm. uh, when the broadcasters were allowed to have more broadcasting hours suddenly there were more slots available for where the Anderson series were perfect and so they got a second life on you know Saturday mornings and things like that where previously you know in the 60s Broadcasting might not start until well, it used to start around midday, midday one o'clock. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Yeah. So the the introduction of Saturday morning that, broadcasting actually. because of uh, changes in regulation actually yeah. gave the Anderson series a second life. That happened around seventy one, seventy two era, if I remember correctly, yeah. because we we used to see 
in London. I know we used to see Stingray and Captain Scarlet at about <coughs> a quarter past 12, I think it was, on a Saturday mm. lunchtime. And then it was news and world of sport. But then I think the hours got extended and things were starting at 10.45. There were episodes on yeah. at 10.45. And then it went even further. And then they were starting the day with Sesame Street at about nine o'clock in the morning. So yeah, it, the, it did change. Um, but I trying to work out still who the market was the target market was for these films i would say if these ufo ones here from is it duran you said um, well they were the sort of distributors um in, in these are the country. italian were, ones yeah that's right so they were importing them uh but you know there was a big market in italy because again it was the only way to see these things in color uh which is again say why stuff got why things got cinema releases even the protectors got a movie release in italy oh now that's the other anderson series we haven't mentioned that yeah. that has been released on eight millimeter as well hasn't it yeah that's right that's right that was uh many episodes or just a couple of episodes of it uh just a couple we've got two thousand feet to die um let's have a look oh here we go wild kind of justice and the big hit three episodes so they've got three episodes, and it's the complete episodes. It's in uh, two four hundred foot reels, so that right. you so you get the complete episode for that. So there's a twenty five minute episode of the protectors across split across two reels, then, so you yeah. get the whole episode. That's not bad going, is it? If you bought something like that, yeah, in the very early eighties, and you mentioned color television. My, I can say it now because she's no longer around. My grandmother still had black and white television in nineteen eighty. Yeah, so did mine. <laughs> yeah. Overall for Anderson, yeah. the 8mm market seems to have done Jerry and Sylvia proud. Yeah, and um, Germany, just to go back there actually, was there's still a great deal of affection for the format. Uh, I've got here a DVD, and uh, this is a, a transfer of my Germany's Django and die Bande de Gehenkten, which is a spaghetti western starring Terence Hill. Uh, if you remember, they call me Trinity with Terence Hill and Bud Spencer. Right. And um, one of the extras, and this is quite a common thing on German DVD releases, is the eight millimeter cut down of it. Is a, is an extra on the DVD release. Oh. Uh, which I think is wonderful. It's I think unusual, isn't that. it? Yeah, I mean, you might remember from last time I was on. I'm a big spaghetti western fan, and uh, Django and die Bande de Gehenkten. Um, does translate very well into English, Django and the Band of the Hand. <laughs> Were the Thunderbird people? movies ever released on 8mm? Did they ever do Thunderbirds Ago and Thunderbird 6? I, a lot of um, cinema movies were released on as 8mm versions. I can remember seeing things like Jaws and The Towering yeah. Inferno and Earthquake. Yeah. I'm wondering if Thunderbirds Ago or Thunderbird 6 mm. or not, and not Doppelganger either. Now, the trailer might have been, because that was quite a big thing. There was a place called the widescreen centre that was because you could get anamorphic widescreen lenses for your 8mm projector. And uh, these were largely sold by a place called the widescreen centre, who would also release anamorphic films, which is obviously the same thing that Cinemascope and Panavision works on. You'll know all this already, but, <laughs> um, but where the print is squeezed to fit onto the square format of the film and then unsqueezed by the lens on the projector to make it widescreen 
and uh, I, I think they might have released the the trailers to the films on that. That rings a bell. And even the Thunderbirds movie, the trailer was released in on eight millimeter, but not the movie itself. Very late in the day, but not the movie itself. No, no. That would have been uh, a no, treat, I think, wouldn't I think, it? I think somebody would have lost their shirt in two thousand and four, <laughs> releasing an entire <laughs> film on eight millimeter. <laughs> It's possibly why I sort of started picking up 16mm films when they were available because they were, if I could get mm. hold of them, they were full full episodes or full yeah. prints and I could watch a whole episode of Space 1999, the whole 50 minutes of it, on one reel of 16, 16 mil film. Because mm. you could get a 35mm print and it not be complete. The 35, do you remember the 35mm print of Thunderbirds Argo that used to do the rounds? And uh, all of the long sequences had been clipped out by some naughty projectionist who wanted to keep them for himself. Really? And, yeah. how, and how do you know that? Do you know the projectionist? <laughs> I don't know. That is very true. It's the only place, it's the only, the top of my list of suspects, let's put it that way, with my detective hat on. Uh, I think I've, I think somebody'd be very naughty there. Or was it just a case that there weren't many films to distribute still in the 80s and what, what was being sent around for re-screenings was just a, an old film oh, that just oh, got... Oh, I should say, this is, this is if you were going, actually going, to this, going to a cinema screening of it, Ah. So if you if you went to something like um, the old Bradford Playhouse and Film Theatre, much missed, uh, where we used to run uh, Anderson events every now and again, we would uh, this would be the print that they would show, and it would be because it was the one that was available through the BFI, mm. uh, and uh, yeah, it was this tatty old print because it was the only one available, and you could tell that they'd put together reels from different prints because every time there's a reel change, the colour balance would be completely different. Right. Yes, and uh, like I say, and there were bits snipped out all over the shop. Fanderson, by the has, same person. Has Fanderson ever had at any of its conventions an eight millimeter film room where perhaps people would just wander in and watch eight millimeter films of some of these things? That's something you could do. I think I think I did that. One of the Bradford ones. Uh, we say we used to use the old Bradford Playhouse and Film Theatre, and I did that. I did that once back in the. It must have been back in the nineteen eighties. Just with yeah, we had an extra screening room downstairs where I was where I brought my uh, my eight millimeter projector and linked it up to a speaker and we showed. And then of course the bulb bust, but it's a bit <laughs> it's a bit of a bumpy ride. Sounds like a lot of fun. Uh, the eight millimeter movies are covered in detail, as we've said before. Fab issue seventy, and uh, it's it's a lovely article that that you've you've committed to paper I should say me, I should say me and Steve Brown because uh, Steve right. Brown of, is he, of the is he's a collector he's also as a well collector. yeah that's right so uh, between us we managed to uh, we managed to put that one together we're talking about visual media in this podcast the other visual media Ian we haven't discussed and I brought in mm. to this podcast to hold up to you today is my very old um Viewmaster um, oh, it's like an old friend, which, seeing the old Viewmaster reel. Which has something in here called, it looks like the Seven Wonders of the World, and it's pictures of the Taj Mahal and other places, the Great Wall of China, I can see, holding it up to the light. And um, yeah, the Seven Wonders of the World are all in here. But we've got to say that Jerry and Sylvia Anderson's shows had an impact on this market as well and were exploited quite well and 
although this is static visual media, photos, still photos as opposed to film we've just been talking about, it is quite exciting for the fact that you're actually looking at your favourite programmes in 3D. Yeah. I mean, the principle goes back to Victorian day, the principle of stereoscopy, as I suppose it's pronounced, uh, because, you know, originally you would, you would get this viewer, which would be this beautiful mahogany uh, thing with two big lenses and two photographs mounted next to each other uh, to, you know, to, to fool your eyes and your depth of perception to make this 3D picture. And the genius of Gaff, when they invented the uh, the Viewmaster, was to uh, to make it affordable for everybody. I think I was but the late like comer. Wonders of the world was the usual was actually the thing that they would mostly sell until they worked out that the TV um, and film stuff were yeah. really big sellers. And of course, though a lot of them were sold, including and I came into it. It must have been very late when I came into it here. Um, but I do have the UFO set, which is quite nice. So it's close yep. up is the episode featured and we've I've got several different versions here of Space 1999 War Games. It's good <coughs> to look at it as the Viewmaster, it's good. But how was it achieved? Did they have 3D stereo cameras then on the film set as they were making it? Because some of these stills that I can see in the UFO set, as I've looked at it just the other day, just ahead of doing this, yeah this podcast there are certain scenes that don't actually appear in the episode so are there certain poses that have been staged i think what they were probably doing it's like within when you see any um publicity still from a film it's not a blown up it's not a blown up frame from the film they have as an on-set stills photographer taking stills for if it's a if it's a cinematic film the front of house set or if it's you know something to go into uh, you know TV Times or something like that, mm. and uh, and I I think Gaff must have just had a way of adapting those pictures just by changing yeah. the uh, you know changing something about one of the pictures compared to the other to make it work in their form. It's very effective, I've got to say. They're very yeah. impressive. Now Gaff is a German company. Not sure, actually. Or was? For some reason, I think man, they're Dutch. I'd have to do a swift bit of googling to work that one out. Yeah. But is um, what I have here all that was done? I've got UFO and Space 1999. Were there other shows? I think something tells me in the back of my mind that there were Thunderbirds. There were definitely Thunderbirds, yeah. Gosh, I remember there was ah, Star Terra, Trek Terra to move Hawks, off of that. Terra Hawks. Of course, Terra Hawks, yes, because I've got that set as well, yes. Yes, so a few Anderson series covered on Gaff Viewmaster. I wonder how yeah, many I think the TV stuff didn't these. become really big until the 70s, which is really why the earlier series weren't covered so much. It's just the format didn't take off. Do you think that video but, again killed off this sort of thing when it came in, end of the 70s, beginning of the 80s? People went for video and then all these things like Viewmaster, 8mm movies, what we've been talking about for the last... 45 minutes or so yeah. here was all killed off it's it's like the internet and online shopping is killing the high street yeah. is what people mm. are telling us now that video and uh, has killed off a lot of the old the old style photographic well, media at the point at which you could have you know you little johnny straker or whoever could have a, a television with a video recorder in his bedroom I think maybe the the Viewmaster reel is probably reaching the end of its life at that point when you can actually just 
watch the thing rather than have a reminder of it because all the things that will be killed off around the same time will be the novelization so oh. just to wrap this then ian because um mm. time's moving swiftly on now if you've got a favorite film that you like to watch and I'm going to ask you, do you ever still get these films out and a projector out? Do you have projection equipment that works still? Do you still do. play them? Do you still play them? And which is your favourite? Well, I have to say, I haven't played them for a long time. I bought a new projector, a new old projector in a jumble sale fairly recently, an old standard 8mm projector, which was the original uh, 8mm format, because I have stuff which I still haven't played. I've got sooty films with Harry Corbett and Sooty on standard 8mm, and I desperately need to play them on. And so, yeah, I've got, I've still got parts of my collection I still haven't watched since I actually bought the blooming things, which must have been 40 years ago. I will get round to it. Well, you better hurry up, hadn't you, and see them. I can see, and I'll tell you what I like about these podcasts. We, The first one we did, <laughs> first time we spoke, we mm. talked about Doppelganger. And what yeah. I liked um, is the feedback about the podcast is it made people feel like they wanted to go and watch Doppelganger. And I'm hoping yeah. that after listening to this podcast that we've put together today, that people are people who've got the old films sitting at, sitting there in a dusty cupboard yeah. somewhere, well, having listened to us natter on, witter on about this thing on the podcast today, we'll want, go and dust down the projector, dust down the films play them just just have a have an afternoon or an evening yeah eight millimeter day or something like that and and feed us back some information via fanderson face facebook and share your experience with us so that we can I agree because it's what's most wonderful about the jerry and sylvia anderson shows is the shared experience of it and there is a certain romance of handling film, you're handling the same foot, the, the same medium that it was originally made on, and that um, say if it's you know that the Thunderbirds films were shown on, it's a it's a smaller version of it, but it's the same medium, and there's a certain sort of continuity involved in that that you feel much more part of the process. You it's feel an organic more... thing, Ian, and I'm yes. holding up to the camera here. We'll have to we'll have to do some photographs for the Founderson Facebook page, but here is um how many thousand feet is this? This is a sixteen millimeter print I've got in my hands here. It's an it's a whole episode of Space nineteen ninety nine on sixteen mm. millimeter. It's another one of these orange ITC. It's a beautiful looking thing, I have to say, listeners. Yeah, this is um, this the, is the Lambda Factor um, yeah. from the second series of Space 1999. I've got to say that just what you're describing here, actually holding film, which is what I'm doing at the moment, the mm. it's organic, isn't it? It's something organic about yeah. film, holding it, watching it from from a projected print. It's very very. It's a very different experience mm. to. A streaming service, or hmm. even, even running, even uh, running a disc. Well, one thing that had never occurred to me: I was watching the uh, the eight millimeter full print of Planet Forty Six from Fireball XL Five this morning, and it was because I've got a conversion of it onto DVD. I didn't have to whip the projector out. Uh, and the thing that never occurred to me is that the sound is better because you don't get PAL speed up. It's the original sound. Everybody's voice is at the correct pitch. Because, I mean, as you'll know better than me, when you're um, 
PAL TV works at 25 frames a second, everything is slightly speeded up. Everyone's talking slightly too quickly and a slightly higher register. And so we're hearing how people like Paul Maxwell and David Graham and Sylvia Anderson mm. actually spoke in the early 60s when they were recording the dialogue. Visual media, I think we've covered film, Viewmasters. We probably will look at doing another podcast on uh, video, DVD and Blu-ray because those are the other visual mediums. That's what most people have used today or have come yeah. through to what we've got now. And, of course, a lot of the Anderson shows are available on these mediums to watch. So we'll have a look at those in another podcast, I want to say a big thanks, Ian Fry, your co-editor of Fab Magazine. Uh, keep writing those fascinating articles because they are indeed that. And thanks for speaking to us on the podcast today. Well, thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. And hope to talk to you again soon, Ros. Special guest time now here on the Fanderson podcast and very recently I managed to catch up with the actress Frances Barber who was about to take to the stage in a production of Oscar Wilde's An Ideal Husband at London's Vaudeville Theatre. Now as many of us Anderson fans know Frances made a guest appearance in Space Precinct in the episode Hate Street. I asked her what she remembered most about making that show. Frances, you and I, our paths nearly crossed back in the 90s because you were over at Pinewood Studios. You were filming something. I was there roughly around the same time, but I must have missed you. The, the show was called Space Precinct. Oh, my goodness. That's a long time ago. Yeah, do you remember that? <laughs> I do remember it. That was my first foray into uh, science fiction. I hadn't a clue what was going on. And it, when I watched it, I didn't know what was happening. No. But it was fun to make. All I remember was a lot of gunfire where they were doing film <laughs> filming with gunfire and the gunshots were so loud and, and had to put your <laughs> fingers in your ears. <laughs> indeed, indeed, yes. I, I, I just remember wearing a very uncomfortable costume, but that's <laughs> been the history of my life. So oh, gosh. Nothing, nothing new there. Well, from uncomfortable costumes to another guest on this Fanderson podcast, welcome back to Nick Williams, club chairman, and uh, who's just gone through a house move. Uh, do you remember Frances in uh, Space Precinct, Nick? I remember her in it. I'm, I'm kind of intrigued now because her mentioning the costume, I'm thinking I should dig out my DVD and have another look because from what I can remember... She was mainly in like a big cloak thing, which which kind of would have hidden a multitude of sins. So I can't imagine what was uncomfortable, but um, I'm going to have to go back and have another look at that. Well, as we've said earlier in this podcast with Ian, we, we hope that people will listen to what we're talking about, then go away and watch their films or watch their DVDs and Blu-rays. And I get the feeling because a lot of the Space Precinct costumes are a bit sort of like post-apocalyptic look weren't they and I get the feeling that they, it was probably plastic or rubber or some such restrictive thing something a little bit kinky that Frances was probably wearing in that episode I do believe she had some love scenes as well with uh, Ted Shackelford as well who played Brogan yes I think you're right yeah 
Yeah. Yeah, definitely in for another watch then. Space Precinct, I think that's going to go on a little bit later which, on today. Which was, which was very clever of you, Roz, because it would... It needs quite a lot to encourage me to watch an episode of Space Precinct nowadays. <laughs> so, um, well done. OK, well, let's have an update on the club then, because that's what we're here to do. You've had a house move. It's probably disrupted things for a little bit, but you're settling down now. We've just seen a wonderful release of, wait for it, a second UFO annual. It's taken about 50 years, but we've now got a second UFO annual. Yeah, the, the UFO annual, we're, we're just chuffed a bit about. Um, it was the brainchild of Chris Drake, who many long-time members will know through his UFO and Space 1999 books and articles. And he came to us with the idea saying, you know, UFO really wasn't well served in the 70s with annuals like every other series. There was the one annual which in many areas, because of the way ITV worked, it was actually too early for people to see it on TV and say, I need the annual for Christmas. And then the following year, the same annual was rehashed, re, um, republished. So so in a lot of areas, people felt, oh, I've had this before. So so it didn't really go down particularly well. Um, and so he said, look, let's do let's do the second annual. And um, it was a bit of a bit of a funny one. You know, we could have done something really cheap and cheerful for UFO's 50th anniversary but we thought no let's go out there and do something really different and, and I think we've done it with the annual you know what has blown me away is people have said how it is done in the style of mm. the original 70s annual it is so well done with respect and reverence for that which hopefully is what we try and do with all our products. It's interesting you saying that with UFO because a lot of people on the Fanderson Facebook page at the moment are talking about uh, UFO's 50th anniversary of being broadcast. Of course, you're right, aren't you? We, we, Where we live, we didn't get to see it till September 1971. So there were a lot of talk about UFO, but we didn't actually see it until September of the following year. Yeah, and, and you'll know this better than me, Rose, but I think UFO, in terms of everyone in the country seeing it at the same time. It's probably one of the worst served Anderson series because there were quite protracted delays. Whereas for a lot of other things, there might have been a few weeks here and there or days between different ITV regions. But I think UFO was probably the worst served of all of them. Mm, absolutely. So we've now got this annual. Have you got enough stock to cope with the orders? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, everything we do is limited edition. We're, we're only allowed to produce a set number we've now sold i think it's about a third of them in just over a month so that's extremely good going but we you know we've got stock that's going to keep us going for a little while yet well that's the ufo annual we've got to turn to fab magazine a bit of a delay yeah it, it you know the ufo annual did take a bit longer to produce than we thought it would plus mike the designer he's been very busy with other projects that he's getting paid for whereas what he does for us, he does for love. Um, so, yeah, Fab has been a bit delayed, but it is on its way. We've got quite a few articles in the bag already. Um, so it is on its way. So just all I can say really is just bear with us, really. Thanks. OK. And what other issues are there or messages that you've got for Fanderson members? Uh, well, well, there's a message that actually I did raise on the first podcast, which I'll, I'll raise again, which is about postage. 
just because of coronavirus, we are still seeing delays in stuff getting to people. It's not as bad as it was, but everything is still being delayed. So it's really reiterating that message that, you know, bear with us. If you've ordered something, please bear with us. If you're in the UK, allow at least four weeks for it to arrive. If you're anywhere else in the world, allow at least eight weeks for it to, for it to arrive. But having said that, we know, we, we can see from people overseas that have said, my annual has arrived. We know things are getting there uh, and it's, it's nowhere near as bad as eight weeks. But um, yeah, just please just be patient. And I think the other thing you, you said about questions, I th- it came up actually, again, related to the annual. There are two questions, I think, in my life involved in Fanderson, two questions that come up relentlessly. One is, what does FAB stand for? <laughs> um, which I'm not going to go into. The other one is, why do I have to buy, join your club to buy your merchandise? Oh, you know, I, I want the UFO annual, but I don't want to join your club. And it's not going to go away. The question's not going to go away because the issue doesn't go away. The issue is we're a club. And like any club, if you pay to be part of that club, you get the facilities, you get the services, you get the perks that being a member gives you. Exactly. And for, for Fanderson, that is the magazine, that's the merchandise, that's going to our events, uh, all those kinds of things. And if you, if you don't want to pay for that, then don't. You know, no one is holding a gun to your head. No one is forcing you to. I think it's just a little bit sad when when people say, oh, I, I would buy that, but I won't join the club on principle. And, and that I find really hard to understand. Um, and, and I think, you know, it, for the price of a membership, if you then binge on the merchandise that, that you, you know, we produce and you like, that, that membership becomes very cheap. Mm. Um, it, you know, it's not, in, it's not expensive if you make the most of it. So, mm. you know, I, I do get it. If, if all you want is the UFO annual, but you're not willing to join the club, then yes. you're going to have to get one of your mates to buy it for you because there's nothing we can do about it. Oh, um, the, the reason is licensing and tax you know we are granted free license to produce what we produce itv don't charge us whereas they would charge a commercial producer but providing it's a limited run providing it's a limited run and providing we only sell to our members so you know we have got an option we could say no we want to pay for a license but that is hundreds and hundreds of pounds yeah, and, which the club just hasn't got. Well, we would have to pass it on in the price of the item. So it comes back to the same thing. It's like, well, actually, you know, I, I, I can't say off the top of my head what a licence would cost for the UFO annual, for example, but it would just make everything much more expensive. And is that a good use of anyone's money? When we, I think we've got a really good deal at the moment. And the other thing is tax. UK tax means we're exempt from paying certain taxes because we trade with our members. If we start to trade with non-members, we're liable for taxes, which then increases the cost again. So simple answer is, sorry, guys, I know not everyone's happy about it, but I think actually on balance, it's the best deal we can do. 
Well, I think it's a very good deal that you do, Nick, and for a year's membership, it's not a lot out of uh, your wallet or your purse, is it? And, of course, uh, access to all those wonderful merchandise items that you're talking about, the UFO Annual, very recently, the Super Space Theatre book, I've got to say, is just really lovely to behold. Another Chris Drake special, actually. Yeah, Chris also was the driving force behind that. He said, you know, these things haven't been served very well. They, they're kind of seen as the black sheep of the Anderson flock, if you like. And, um, and that was his baby as well. So he's done two really good pieces of work for us. Yeah, and you've got a great team behind you at Fanderson, all working at various points of the compass, all getting together at certain times, I should imagine virtually now, with committee meetings. Yeah, we've we've had to embrace the video conferencing for our committee meetings, uh, which has been well not without not without trial. But we're we're getting there. I, I mean, the fantastic thing is that that facility exists. You know, if if I think back five ten years to try and do it on the telephone would have been hard. But at least we can see each other. And we can see people's expressions and reactions to things. And um, you know, it, it's not as good as being in the room, but it works, as I think most people know from from talking to friends and family. Well, I'm sure if it's good enough for BBC News and Sky News at 10 or whatever, it's good enough for Fanderson. Great chatting with you on the podcast today, Nick, and um, thanks for the update. You're very welcome. I did, I did kind of wonder whether whether it's the kind of thing people would be interested in to do kind of a, a Q&A. I guess it's down for the members to tell us what they want in these podcasts, but I'm happy to come back and, and talk to members if they've got questions that they want answered. Um, so let us know if something like that would work for them. And so ends another wonderful Fanderson podcast. I've been Ros Connors. Thanks for your company. Big thanks to my guests as well. Ian Fryer, co-editor of Fab Magazine and also to actress Frances Barber and Fanderson Club chairman Nick Williams. I shall be back very soon to do it all again with some new guests. Do let us know over at the Fanderson Facebook page if there are any topics you'd like us to cover in future editions. Cheerio for now and I'll catch you very soon. 